Uh, we are continuing in our service in uh, this Journey to Jerusalem message, and when I was reading this week about the um, journey of Jesus to Jerusalem from Galilee, it says that he took about six months to get there. And that's a lot of meanderings back and forth through towns and villages and uh, whatnot, and teaching. So we're actually taking five months to talk about his six months. And uh, we'll, we'll run this into the first part of the summer because there's just a lot of material. So we're actually looking at Luke chapter 13 today. We're moving ahead. And uh, the focus this week is on the narrow path or the doorway or... Um, yeah, it's, it's Jesus being very um, kind of blunt and cryptic at the same time. In other words, he's not coming out and saying um, everything that as clearly as he could, but he is giving some very, very strong hints about what it's going to be like uh, when he comes back. And so sometimes he tells really fun stories like the prodigal son where we have rebellious son goes off and uh, messes up and repents and comes back and there's forgiveness and restoration. This particular passage is not like that. It's uh, more uh, warning after warning after warning to his people. And so we're going to look at this. We're going to look a a little bit about the historical context as well. And um, I find it fascinating, but uh, I guess Jesus just wanted people to know the facts. What's it going to be like uh, down the road? So Luke chapter 13, what I'm going to do is walk through the passage. Um, We call this an exegetical sermon, so verse by verse. I'm not going to read the whole uh, passage ahead of time. We'll just work through it as we go. So if you want to follow along, there are pew Bibles in the front if you like as well. Luke 13 verse 1. About this same time, Jesus was told that Pilate had given orders for some people from Galilee to be killed while they were offering sacrifices. Who's Pilate? Do you remember? He's the Roman governor, uh, the fifth governor over the province of Judea. He was serving under Emperor Tiberius. He's best known for being the, the official who presided over the trial of Jesus and ultimately ordered his crucifixion. So uh, it's talking here about why he ordered people to be killed uh, that came from Galilee when they were offering uh, sacrifices in the temple. And scholars don't really know the context. Not everything that was done by Roman officials was recorded historically. Um, What we know is that this is consistent with his character and manner of governing. And most likely it was a power move on his part. Rebellious people need to be dealt with. Suppress the rebellion So he, for some reason, decided that when they came to Jerusalem from Galilee, he arrested them and had them executed. Jesus says, well, do you think that these people were worse sinners than anyone else in Galilee just because of what happened to them? There is a a belief, and I don't know if it persists to today, but I have a feeling it does, that when bad things happen to someone, it's likely because they're a bad person. They probably deserved it. Uh, if you're a Buddhist or Hindu, it would be karma, like, you know, bad things happen to those that do bad things. Uh, or sometimes um, it could be like uh, judgment of the gods, the Romans would say. Or maybe you've said uh, what goes around comes around. I've said that. Uh, it's this idea that when bad things happen, 
Probably it was a just reward for them. Um, you reap what you sow, you know, that's what the Bible says. Well, Jesus says, um, not at all. They weren't worse sinners than anyone else. But you can be sure that if you don't turn back to God, every one of you will also be killed. I'm going, what? He's talking to an audience, and he's saying, you are no better. Unless you repent, you're going to face the same judgment. You will meet the same end as these Galileans did. Truth is, 37 years later, after Jesus was crucified, these Roman uh, soldiers, the, the Roman emperor, um, came in and besieged Jerusalem for several months. It was a bad, bad scene. They cut off, they surrounded the city of Jerusalem with their army. No one could get in or out. All the food supplies were, were done. Um, there was cannibalism. Uh, there was rebellions inside. Eventually, the Romans breached the walls, the three different sets of walls around Jerusalem. They breached the walls. I think it took three months. And uh, mass slaughter of people. And whoever wasn't slaughtered or tried to escape were captured and made into slaves. Not a pretty sight. But understand that Jesus is actually warning them right now in this passage about what's coming Unless you repent, he says, you're going to find that you're dealing with exactly the same fate as those Galileans did. And then he goes on, uh, just to say that um, the Roman destroyed the city and completely wiped out the second Jewish temple. Just as Jesus had predicted about not one stone was going to be left upon the other. Uh, In fact, it was so destroyed, the temple, that... Uh, they swept off. Have you seen the Temple Mount where the mosque is right now? Well, that plateau of this mountain was totally wiped clean. There wasn't a, actually a stone left on the entire. It was all pushed off over the sides. Some people think that, that it was um, done that way because there's lots of gold inside the temple. And it, it, it was burned to the ground. And so that the gold kind of seeped in and amongst all the stones and uh, materials, and so they'd separated everything, got all the gold from in, and then carried it off to Rome. So Jesus also goes on. Another story. He says, well, what about the 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think they were worse off than everyone else in Jerusalem? Another one of these uh, fatalistic things that just happened. A tower falls. Here's uh, what uh, the Pool of Siloam was a rendering of what it could have been on the left, and what uh, there's an upper pool and there's a lower pool, and we assume that some towers were on the perimeter and crumbled. Maybe there was an earthquake, fell on people, 18 people died. And Jesus is saying the same thing. Do you think they were worse off than anyone else in Jerusalem? He says, not at all in verse 5, but you can be sure that if you don't turn back to God, every one of you will also die. They say that 97,000 Jews were captured and enslaved and hundreds of thousands were killed and the city was burned to the, city, uh, to the ground. And lots of people died under the rubble, the same thing. It's like Jesus is saying, listen, listen to my words because if you don't repent, you're, you're going to face the same kind of judgment. There's in Rome, have you, how many have been to Rome? Any of you had the, you see the Colosseum there and outside the Colosseum just a... a 
just a small walk away. This is the Arch of Titus. And Titus was the governor at the time <coughs> that was ruling over Judea, over Jerusalem. And uh, inside that arch, if you go in and you look up, you see the relief uh, on the right of the sacking of the temple of Jerusalem. The big golden menorah that was carried off, all the loot that was taken back to Rome. Celebrating the victory over the, the Jews, um, two triumphal arches were actually erected in 71 A.D., and um, it's interesting because it's, the historians say that Titus, the governor, um, he refused to accept the wreath of victory when he came back to Rome because he claimed that he had not won the victory on his own, but had been the vehicle through which their God had manifested his wrath against his own people. In other words, you can't, you can't be proud of a victory over a people whose God abandoned them. This is what the Roman general is saying. He recognized that the people had no defense. Their, his, their God had left. Part of the judgment over his people. This particular passage demonstrates a couple of things that I want to just point out. So there's two stories talking about don't be pointing fingers at others. Don't be thinking that they're, any worse, they're worse off than you are. It says unless you repent, you'll find the same kinds of judgment coming your way. Or... For Christians that are true believers, the same kind of discipline, perhaps, will be coming your way. So first of all, uh, we, we recognize in these passages that Jesus was well aware of his current and past events. He basically takes the newspaper and uses it to teach spiritual truths. He knows what's going on. He knows the rumors. He knows the stories. He knows histor- historical things going on. He's not um, above it all. He's, he's in it. He hears you know, probably his disciples had said, what about those people that died with the temple or in the tower? Like, were they worse sinners? And so he uses this as a teaching moment. Second, he's challenging the current religious beliefs that tragedy only happens to evil people while blessings happen to good people. People have a tendency to judge others and assign blame to them for what they have to endure. Uh, this is very sensitive. As a pastor, I've been in situations where new babies have been born, and maybe they're born with a, a challenging condition or cleft palate or some handicap. And some people think, well, maybe, you know, God is just teaching the parents a lesson. I cringe at the, at the thought of that. Or uh, maybe, uh, you know, anything that bad has happened is because maybe there's something in their, their history or their their past, that, that this, is, this is a result, and going, you know, no, 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 not so, Jesus is saying. We should fear God and focus on repenting of our own sins rather than passing judgment on others. Don't be looking to someone else who is enduring a tragedy. Walk alongside of them, encourage them, support them. Don't think that they're being judged by God. That's not what God does. Third, the Pool of Siloam itself is really has no particular uh, spiritual meaning other than a, um, a blind man who was healed there. But it's demonstrating that there is a historical component to the gospel accounts. So the New Testament refers to historical people like Herod the Great and the Pharisees and Sadducees, Pontius Pilate, Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, King Agrippa and Bernice, Herod and Antipas, it refers to actual historical cities and actual historical locations and archaeological places that we can find today. 
saying that the, the Gospels are not some made-up account that some guy sat in a bar and wrote one night just for fun. The Gospel accounts are actually historical, historically accurate truths referring to real people in real times, and it's proven over and over and over as they find more and more archaeological sites to prove what the, the, the Bible is actually talking about. It gives historical credibility to the Gospels. They're accurate. They're not made up and unverifiable stories. Uh, the fourth thing about this passage is it makes painfully clear that there will be punishment for everyone who is unrepentant of their sins. Jesus is giving a warning to the listeners to say, you're not exempt. You don't get a pass. Uh, everyone who is unrepentant will face judgment. It doesn't matter... Um, if you perish by the sword or natural disasters, in the, as in these accounts, there's nothing really compared or comparable to the actual pain and suffering that is waiting for those at the end of the days. For those who refuse to bow to the Lordship of Jesus, God's Savior to the world, uh, there will be much more <laughs> suffering that's coming. God is merciful, and the devastation that took place in Jerusalem was a result of unrepentant hearts. So, AD 70, when the city was totally destroyed, Jesus said, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And some, many people believe that the Christians who listened to Jesus, who, who heard his predictions, who realized that he was not just um, telling stories, but giving them accurate information about what's coming. He said many believe many Christians left the city and went to other places up to Antioch or other cities where churches were and avoided the catastrophe that the unbelieving Jewish nation that was there faced. God's wrath came upon his own stubborn and hard-hearted people. But even when justice is required, uh, the next section, verse 6, says he's often willing to wait uh, to give a second chance, to hold off. The Bible talks about God being long-suffering, uh, patient, kind, and merciful. But all of that comes to an end at some point. It says, you know, enough is enough. And now comes judgment. In verse 6, it talks about um, a man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, which is apparently a common thing. And one day he went out to pick some figs, but he didn't find any. So he said to the gardener, for three years, I've come looking for figs on this tree, and I haven't found anything yet. Chop it down. Why should it take up any space? And the gardener said, well, master, leave it, leave it for one more year. I'll dig around it. I'll put some manure on it and make it grow. And maybe it will have figs in the next year. And if it doesn't, you can cut it down then. What's this weird story about fig tree in a vineyard. Well, just remember that Jesus' ministry was for three years, that he had been coming time and time and time again over a three-year period, telling people about the good news, about the gospel, about how you can be made right with God, how you can have an abundant life. Put your faith in him, the Messiah. He, he's there right in front of them. Yet time and time he was reject, not only rejected, but they plotted to, to murder him, putting him on a cross. Some believed. Some accepted the gospel. Some turned and repented and followed him. There is, there's some reports of you know, hundreds of people that 
followed him. Not many were left around the cross, uh, maybe uh, seven or eight at the time of his crucifixion, but there were many people that believed him to be the Messiah. The parable replies, uh, it um, applies to all people, that Jesus is coming to expect fruit in our life. He's coming to us and looking for fruit in our life. What kind of fruit? Fruit of the Spirit, fruit of faithfulness, fruit of all that He's invested in us as we become more and more generous, more forgiving, more loving, more grace-oriented, more encouraging to others. And what he's saying is if there is no fruit forthcoming, if you're the same person year after year after year, when he comes looking for fruit in your life, um, there are consequences. Remember he talks about the vine and the branches. Same kind of idea that he is the the vine and the branches are supposed to bear fruit. And if they don't, they get cut off somehow. God's discipline will be forthcoming. So he's confronting them with their pride or selfishness, stubbornness, self-centeredness, and others and offers them a better way to follow. Sometimes I hear people complaining about their tough luck. Maybe they got sick and had to cancel their vacation, or maybe they got expensive repairs with a vehicle or massive home repairs, didn't get into the program or school they applied for, health problems. They want to blame God. Why would God do this to me? How come God allowed this to happen? It's like, God didn't take care of me. God, you know, ruined my vacation and ruined my life because he didn't give me what I wanted. And I And I wonder if these people in these situations could be under the discipline of God. If you're saying, you know what, I'm not the focus of your life. You're just living your life for yourself. You're just year after year doing things, you're living your your best life, doing your fulfilling all of your dreams, but you've left me out. I'm not in the middle of your life. I have nothing, you have nothing in common with me. I'm trying to help you to understand that that the, the end is coming. You will stand before me one day. There is judgment. And you have to give an account of how you, uh, how you handled the things I give you, the blessings I gave you. How did you help the kingdom? How were you involved in bringing the gospel to people that needed to hear it? Jesus rebukes coasting Christians, full of Bible classes but not actually making a difference in their own workplace or community or neighborhoods. No fruit to be found I have talked with people who have been Christians for 50 years, yet they've never, never really shared their faith with anybody. They've never brought anybody into the kingdom of God. And I, what kind of, what are you going to show God that you led Bible studies, you led home groups, you went to church, you sang songs? Is that what you're going to show him? What does fruit look like? Well, so Jesus keeps going. In verse 22, it says, as he uh, was on his way to Jerusalem, again, journey to Jerusalem, he just keeps slowly going in that direction. He taught the people in the towns and villages. And someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? That's, an, I think, kind of an odd question. Who would come up with that question? Maybe they've been listening to what he's been talking about. And so Jesus answers in verse 24, do all you can to go in by the narrow door. Again with the door. It's interesting, he says, I am the door. <laughs> but do all you can, that word do all you can is actually agonizomai, where we get the word agonize from. It means to struggle or compete for a prize, to contend with adversaries, to fight, labor fervently, to strive, 
The whole idea is that there's something worth fighting for, there's something worth contending for, that the, that the kingdom of God, salvation, uh, being made right with God is worth making every possible effort to get there, to, to achieve that, to hold on to that, let everything else go that's stopping you, that's hindering you, that's, that's entangling you. Get rid of that stuff so that you can get the prize. He says, a lot of people will try to get in but will not be able to. And this, this verse actually bothers me. I'm not quite sure how to apply it because there's a lot of people that could care less. <laughs> we have no interest in Jesus at all. They no, no reflection at all that God's even out there wanting to be a part of their life. But he says here, many people actually try to get into the narrow, to the, the narrow door, but they won't be able to. The way I read it is that many start well, but most don't end well. Like the parable of the sower and the seeds, three quarters of the people who hear the word of God, who are intrigued by the gospel, who even say they believe in Jesus or even get baptized, won't make it through the narrow door. It's not about, it's not about works. It's not about what you do that gets you into heaven. It's about your relationship with him. Such people maybe never have brought someone to Jesus. They were never filled or empowered or led by the Holy Spirit. They never quite knew what Jesus' voice sounded like. They maybe prayed a prayer to Jesus and committed to live their life for him. (coughs) Sorry, I try not to do that very often. (laughs) They're being nice, they're doing good things, hoping that that's what it means to be a Christian, but they've never struggled to know Jesus They've never worked hard to, to be in his presence, to be able to discern his voice when he's speaking. They've never, they've never worked, <clears throat> worked it out with the Spirit of God to release all of their life into his hands. They're barely seeking him. They're putting in a minimal effort. They've never fought the fight. They've never contended with the enemy. They've never disciplined themselves in prayer or searching for Jesus and the Scriptures or growing in their love for God and others. They love themselves more than they love Jesus. They build up their own kingdom rather than his kingdom. They were never fully abandoned to God. They've always kept back part of themselves for themselves, never fully releasing their lives into his hands. There are some professional Christians who followed all the rules, did all the right things, kept all the commandments, but never loved Jesus. Go through the motions, but never knowing him personally. They can talk about him and quote the Bible, but they don't personally know Jesus. They don't have a relationship. Do you want to know what the secret is to getting through that narrow door that leads to life? Anybody? There's a secret. Jesus told us in Matthew 16, 24, he says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Paul said it this way, my friends, I don't feel that I've already arrived, but I forget what is behind and I struggle for what is ahead. I run towards the goal so that I can win the prize of being called to heaven. This is the prize that God offers because of what Christ Jesus has done. Paul knew how to struggle, to run the race, to finish the race, to finish strong, to not get distracted or, um, by all the things that the world has to offer. Jesus goes on to say in verse 25, 
Once the owner of a house gets up and locks the door, you will be left standing outside. You will knock on the door and say, hey, open the door for us. But the owner will say, I don't even know you. Then you'll start saying, well, we we ate with you. You taught in our streets. But he will say, I don't know you. Get away from me, you evil people. When you've been thrown outside, you will weep and grit your teeth because you will see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in God's kingdom. Jesus is talking about heaven and hell. Same thing with Lazarus, the, the beggar and the rich man, where they both died and Lazarus was, it says, taken up to the bosom of Abraham and the rich man was sent off in eternity apart from God, whereas fire and he says, I need it just a drink of water. And he could see Abraham and all the prophets up in heaven, but he couldn't get there. The door to heaven will be shut, and people will find themselves thrown down to the place where there was much pain and suffering. He goes on to say in verse 29, people will come from all directions and sit down to feast at God's kingdom. There, the ones who are now least important will be the most important, and those who are now most important will be least important. Remember another door that God closed and people couldn't get in anymore, and they faced the judgment. How about Genesis chapter 7, Noah's Ark? The door was closed. Those that had been told and told and told to repent and return to God, who refused, were left outside, and they perished. Matthew 24, 37 says, The arrival of the Son of Man will take place in times like Noah. Before the great flood, everyone was carrying out as usual, having a good time, right up to the day Noah boarded the ark. They knew nothing until the flood hit and swept everything away. The Son of Man's arrival will be like that. Two men will be working in the field. One will be taken and one left behind. Two women will be grinding at the mill and one will be taken. One was going to be left behind. So stay awake. Stay alert. You have no idea what day your master will show up. Be vigilant. You have no idea when the Son of Man is going to show up. There's a lot of gates uh, in Jerusalem from time to time. Historically, there was as, as few as four, one on each corner of the walls, and as many as 12, 12 uh, different gates around the cities over the centuries. Jerusalem's actually one of the oldest uh, inhabited cities in the world. Each gate was closed before sunset and opened at sunrise. So if you were too late getting back, to the city, uh, you were at the mercy of both wild animals or robbers that came out at night. They weren't going to open the gate for a straggler. Sorry, come back in the morning. <laughs> I'm sure, I kind of like to do that with my son sometimes, you know, lock the door, you're coming past the curfew. Sorry, sleep in your car tonight, not letting you in. Too bad, so sad. But I don't do that. He has a key. so <laughs> He says, do everything you can To get in by the narrow door, a lot of people will try and get in but not be able to. The gates will be closed. Sunset has happened. It's too late. You're going to be on the outside. He was well aware of the judgment of God that was going to be visited upon the city of Jerusalem. First, his wrath is going to be poured out over unrepentant people who refuse to bow to his son as the Messiah. And second, God's fledgling church that was in the city of Jerusalem, if they were listening, if they took heed to the master's voice and his warning, they got out of, the, out of Dodge before all the destruction happened. But it, it broke Jesus' heart, and he'd hoped for a larger acceptance of him. Listen to what he says 
at the end of this chapter 13 about Jerusalem. This is, this is the Messiah that Jesus, who's warning people over and over and over again. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, your people have killed the prophets and have stoned the messengers who were sent to you. I've often wanted to gather your people as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you wouldn't let me. Now your temple will be deserted. You won't see me again until the time when you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The Jewish people thought they were chosen and that they were protected, that no evil would come. They just didn't know their history. You know, it's not the first time that the whole city had been destroyed. The Babylonians came in and did it and hauled everyone off into captivity before that. They thought that they could just uh, give the temple tax, go to the religious festivals, go to the appointed sacrifices, and they'd be okay. But clearly they were wrong. It didn't work that way. It's not that much different from many people today calling themselves Christians who said a prayer, got baptized, and feel that they're okay. So several times Jesus says those who will be saved in the end will be those who are engaged in kingdom work, those who strive to please Jesus every day, those who are directed by the Spirit of God, those who struggle against the pressures and enticements of this world, who prayerfully do battle against the enemy, who persevere to the end. Read a passage like this and you just wonder, okay, what are you saying to us, God? What, what do you want us to know? Well, my question is, are you okay? Christ came back tomorrow. Will you be on the inside of the building or will you be standing on the outside with the door locked? That's not for me to judge. I, I started the whole message with don't be judging other people. Look to your own self. As a pastor, my, my job is to take the passage that Jesus speaks and, and help us to maybe understand what he's trying to say. But you're the ones who have to decide, am I doing okay? Am I coasting in my Christian walk? It's a lifelong commitment, not taken lightly. You know, historically, there's been thousands and thousands of Christians who have died for their faith. They were martyred. They were crucified. They were tortured. They were killed because they refused to deny Christ as their Lord. So where are you on your journey with Jesus? Are you making the effort to find him? Are you seeking him with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength as he commands? Are you finding him? And do you love him and worship him and serve him? I hope so. I hope it's an amazing reunion when our Lord comes back and we can just sit and weep out of gratitude because we know it's true and he is coming back. Would you pray with me? Father God, these are tough words to hear, and you wanted your people to hear them. You spoke them. This is a day of truth, of honesty, of reflecting on what your expectations are. You are the door, the only way to achieve salvation. Father God, may we be striving to know you. May we be doing every effort to serve you in a way that pleases you. Father God, help us to put you in the center of our life, on the throne of our heart. And may everything that we do reflect our love for you and for your people and for those that need to hear you. God, may we be found faithful when you show up to bring us home to a place you prepared for us. 
Father God, I know you're not playing games. You're not just doing a big joke. This is life or death. This is eternity, eternity at stake. So help us, Father, take this seriously to listen to what you're trying to tell us today. And may we be found worthy when you come. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.